There must be balance in the force, and there must be balance in a major league lineup. Well, just call Brian Cashman, Amazon Prime. The Yankees needed left-handed bats in their righty-heavy lineup. He ordered two on Thursday, and with one-day shipping, they will be with the Yankees in Miami. Joey Gallo and Anthony Rizzo are coming in hot from the Rangers and the Cubbies. It's a new hope in the Bronx. Will the Empire start striking back with the return of the lefties? Our special guest is Yankees legend Nelly's old four-time World Series champion winning teammate Bernie Williams. Lots to discuss on a trade deadline edition of the Pinstripe Pod from the New York Post. Hello and welcome back to the Pinstripe Pod, our Yankees podcast with the New York Post. It's Chris Sheeran here with four-time World Series champion Yankees dominant relief pitcher Jeff Nelson. You'll hear our producer, Jake Brown, as well during the show. Follow us on Twitter. That's at Chris Sheeran, yes. At NYNelly43 and at Jake Brown Radio. Joining us in a bit will be another four-time World Series champion and another of Nelly's tremendous teammates, Bernie Williams. But first, there's good news and there's bad news with the Yankees. And we're going to start with the good news, uh, Jeff, this time. And, you know, a, a bad loss to the Rays, their last game in Tampa. But how do you erase that, Jeff? You go out and you trade for two big lefties that were desperately needed to balance out this lineup. Anthony Rizzo and Joey Gallo both headed to the Bronx via Miami. What say you, big guy? Uh, You know, I was excited. I tweeted out. I said, if you were a Yankee fan, you have to be excited with what Brian Cashman has done. You know, he's given this team an opportunity to win. Uh, You you know, I even thought he did a nice job. He could have done some tweaks in the wintertime. You know, I thought a different different way to construct a team, but he didn't. I still thought the team was one of the best, if not the best in the American League. And it hasn't turned out to be that way. But he has come through during the trade deadline and got two power lefties and two excellent defenders as well. Anthony Rizzo is a very good first baseman, but I think one of the best first baseman, most athletic first baseman's in the game. I think he's outstanding around the bag. And I think Gallo is a very good outfielder. I mean, he's a, he's a really good outfielder, actually. So maybe the best outfielder that the Yankees have right now. So I think he's not just added offense, which they need. Now you can mix and it's a well-balanced and you can go right, left, right, left. However, Aaron Boone or the computer wants to construct the <laughs> lineup, you can actually, you know, make you know, go right, left, right, left and make it a little bit more difficult on a team. And they're not just right-handed dominant anymore. You know, and that's what they needed. It's funny, Jeff, you bring that up. And I know you and I are around the same age. So I know you remember the Jetsons. I just had this vision of Aaron Boone standing next to a computer, putting in like the opponent, the day, whether it's a night game or day game, the lefty or righty pitcher that they're facing. And then the computer spits out the damn lineup. Yeah, Elroy I mean, brings it down. To Elroy. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Elroy and Astro help George out. With the old uh, lineup. But, um, yeah, we've got on Brian Cashman, uh, whether it was in the offseason or whether it was during the early parts of the season to improve this team and to get some more balance in this lineup. But you have to look at what he did. And not only did he bring in these two lefties, Jeff, but the Rangers are paying most of the $2.2 million left on Gallo's deal this year. And the Cubs are picking up everything on Rizzo's deal. So they are getting Rizzo 
for free 99 this year. He is a free agent at the end of the season. So who knows if he'll be a Yankee in the future. But he just said his wife has family in Connecticut. He has family in New York and New Jersey. This is where he wanted to be. Same thing with Joey Gallo. He wanted to be with the New York Yankees. So you have to put that into the into the hopper as well. And I know Gallo strikes out a lot. 36% of the time he goes to the plate, he strikes out. But he also gets on base 38% of the time. These are both big lefty bats with high on base percentages. So this is definitely an upgrade to this Yankee lineup, which, as you've said multiple times, and I've echoed it, has been listless, has been dead in the water, much like their 14-0 loss in St. Pete on Thursday, but not anymore. This could really truly be, this is not just conjecture, this could be the injection, Nelly, that this team needs to make a run deep into October. Well, and that's the thing, you know, you you look at trades and you look at teams that wind up trading, you look at the Cubs, they're probably lifeless right now, they lose one of their team leaders, and who knows, they could probably lose more as the day goes on before the deadline. So, you know, I saw Rizzo yesterday, and and I, I saw some footage as far as him walking around Wrigley Field and just, you know, soaking in the memories that he had. He won a World Series there. And, uh, you know, he's from Florida, so they're going to play in Miami here over the weekend against the Marlins, and he's going to be a Yankee. So, you know, everybody should love being a Yankee, I think. You know, I played there. I loved being there, and uh, it does. It infuses an energy in that clubhouse because you know your general manager went out and, and helped the team and he did everything that he could. And cost-wise, cost I mean, the Steinbetters have been have to be ecstatic right now as far as not going over that $210 million luxury tax. So they've got to be ecstatic to what Brian Cashman was able to do as far as get quality players that will help this lineup and help them hopefully – I, I still don't think they can win the East. I think they're far enough out right now. I, I really don't think they can win the East, but I think they can get one of the wild card spots. I mean, it'll be disappointing with what they've done in the trade deadline as far as not competing for the East. I just think the Red Sox, I really don't understand what the hell the Rays are doing right now as far as the trade trade deadline. But it infuses an energy. It, it gives that life. It gives, a, you know, because we've talked about, Chris, every time that the Yankees just look lifeless. A lot of times when they go, they're going through the motions, you know, why are they lifeless? Why aren't they more, why aren't there more energy in that clubhouse? If this didn't infuse any kind of energy and also, if you're a Giancarlo Stanton or a judge or anyone else in that lineup and say, holy crap, look what we just got. And you don't want to go out there and smack the ball over the fence or hit the ball as hard as you can all the time, you, you know, which they do anyway. But I mean, they, uh, it, it just gives you a life. And, and even as a pitching staff, you're like, holy crap, look at this lineup now. I don't want to face them. You know, you got to go out there with an extra, uh, I guess, incentive or I won't say a chip on your shoulder, but an extra incentive that, hey, you know what, we're going to win. We're going to do it for the fans. We're going to do it for everybody who kept uh you know, criticizing us during the year. And it was what, and it was fair. I mean, everybody should have criticized this team. You know, it just gives that team, it gives everybody an extra, extra boost. And that's, you got to love it. Well, not only does it give the lineup a little flexibility, it gives the lineup, oh my God, is it long now? My, my goodness. I mean, think about the possibilities. I know we were talking about the computer spitting it out, but just for, you know, to have a little fun here, let's just say DJ LeMahieu leads it off. Then you put Rizzo in the two-hole. Then you follow him with Judge. Then you put Gallo in the four-hole, followed by Giancarlo Stanton. And I'm just making this up as I go along. And then after Stanton, you could put Rugnet Odor. That's another lefty. And then you have uh, Gio Urshela, Gary Sanchez. I haven't even mentioned his freaking name yet. I mean, it's just so long, this lineup. And if you're an opposing pitcher, you just brought it up, Jeff. You can't 
take it easy on anybody. One through nine, the Yankees are going to have pop in this lineup, and there's going to be a lot of fastball scene because you're not going to be able to get away with not having to be locked in to every single at bat. And you're talking about guys like Gallo, and uh, I know, again, I know he strikes out, and and Rizzo, they're going to work you. They're going to work at bats. Gallo also walks a lot. So does Rizzo. So we're going to see this lineup completely, I think, in my mind, change. The course of this season, right before the trade deadline, this team is going to start shooting up meteorically, in my estimation. All they have to do now is add maybe another arm. Hopefully they do that. But the Yankees right now, the future to this 2021 season, which looked bleak before we learned about these two trades with these two big lefties, now looks very bright. Yeah, let's go back a little bit. I mean, the only thing that I didn't like is the two relievers that they added. I mean, they, they packaged Rodriguez with Gallo, and, you know, he's a lefty with a six-something ERA, and then you have uh, Holmes from Pittsburgh. You know, they're the only two when I, I, I scratched my head. You needed bullpen depth. You needed to add some arms, and, and hopefully they turn things around as a Yankee. You know, we'll wait and see, but... Uh, let's go back a little bit with the lineup. You know, you, you're adding Rizzo and now you're adding Gallo. We have to figure out who's going to be out, the odd man out. And obviously, I think Luke Boyd is one of those. He's going to be ready to come off the IL here soon. And also, you mentioned Rugador Odor. Where does he go? You, you know, you have Urshelo at third. You have Torres at short. LeMayu is an everyday player. You're not sitting this guy, and he's going to be your second baseman. Odor is probably going to be the guy that's going to be off the bench, I imagine. I don't I don't see them releasing him or DFAing him. Whoever's a bench guy, it does, you know, it does strengthen your bench if that happens as well. So that's that's a good thing when you have someone like Odor coming off the bench. And he could also spell, you know, somebody needs a day off. But I see those two guys, your right side of the infield, are going to be totally different now. You know, Odor probably will not play second, and obviously Voigt. They're going to have to try to move him because he's just not, he's not a bench player. He's not a guy that's going to come off the bench. Yeah, it's a good, it's definitely, it's a great point by you. And it's a good problem to have if you're Aaron Boone, because the bench, as we've seen uh, in recent weeks, it was like Boone was old mother Hubbard and there was nothing in the cupboard. And now uh, that problem has been solved as well. The Yankees bench along with the lineup is going to be much improved. And Odor, I think you need to get him consistent at bat. So I don't know how they're going to do that. But as I said, it's a good problem to have. And you said you don't know what the hell the Tampa Bay Rays are doing. I mean, they did go out and get Nelly Cruz. Okay, fine. You got to look at a team like your old team, the Seattle Mariners. I don't know what the hell they're doing either. They're ahead of the Yankees right now in the wild card. And they just traded their closer away. And I know they got Tyler Anderson. But for the love of God, Nelly, I don't know what the hell your old club is doing. They're trashing the clubhouse. See, the Yankees and the Mariners. Mariners are going opposite ways. The Mariners trashed their clubhouse. The Yankees are probably popping champagne (laughs) before they make that wild card in their clubhouse because of these moves. That's why I said I don't understand what the Rays are doing. They're in the second wild card by, I think, what? Well, at least three and a half over the Yankees, two and a half maybe over the Mariners. So Chargois and Castillo go out to Seattle and strengthen their bullpen because when they lost Graveman, it was a little... you know, he just took the life out of the clubhouse. He was having an outstanding year, and I don't care if he's a free agent or not. He's having the best year of his career, and he's not going to command a great deal of money as far as in free agency. You know, maybe sign a two- or three-year deal with some team for, you know, some decent money, but not something that was going to break the bank. That's why, you you know, you have the team like the Rays that just spanked the Yankees 14 to nothing, and all of a sudden you get rid of – you've gotten rid of three pitchers so far. You just traded Rich Hill, who was having a decent year for the Rays, and you just traded him to the Mets – 
and you just traded two bullpen arms. You know, you have the best bullpen in the American League. I think maybe the best bullpen in baseball as far as ERA. And you wind up trading them, getting rid of two key guys. So I don't know what the Rays are doing. I have no clue. Seattle did help themselves out just a little bit, try to make up a little ground by trading trading Graveman. But, you know, you look at the Yankee outfield, you had add Gallo, and obviously he's going to be an everyday player because he's such a good outfielder. And you have the you have your, uh, your clock at, as a DH. Well, guys, but I think there's still something happening before. Oh, God, Jake, what happened? No, 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 nothing, nothing, nothing's <laughs> happening yet. But I've got to poop. No. <laughs> Breaking news: John Hamer reporting Jake Brown will poop in the one o'clock hour before the trade deadline hits. I've um, got a turtle head working. <laughs> but it's interesting because they they go to Miami this week in a big series. I would say I need you guys to beat them, but the Marlins have been irrelevant. But Giancarlo Stanton returns to his former squad, and him playing the outfield could make things easier for the Yankees, too. If his body could actually uh, stay out there without getting hurt, that will help the Yankees, too, because then, you know, if they did keep Voight, they'll have options, someone at DH, standing in the outfield with Judge and Gallo. Um, they can make things work. But remember, it comes down to this one-game playoff, and what you saw Thursday from your ace was not good. And if Garrett Cole has to pitch that one-game playoff, you could have Michael Jordan, you could have Babe Ruth in the lineup. If they can't pitch... They're not going to win that one-game playoff against uh, whatever ace or whatever starter the Rays end up throwing out there. So that's really what it comes down to is pitching in October, Nelly, as you know. And uh, Garrett Cole's got to get right here in the final two months. And and that might be in Tampa. You know, who, who knows if the Yankees get the first wild card or the second wild card. If they have to go to Oakland, if they have to go to Tampa, uh, you just saw the horror show that unfolded on Thursday night when the Yankees got blown up 14 nothing. I don't know why Aaron Boone let it get that far uh, uh, with the bullpen, but Garrett Cole let up eight runs, seven earned the most as he has as Yankee, and as Jake just alluded to. I hate bringing money into it, but when you're the ace, you have to go out there and you have to do your job. The Yankees are looking for a sweep, division rival that has treated them like their redheaded stepchild for the past couple of years, especially down at their place. You need to go out there on the mound and you need to lock that down. You need to walk out of there with a sweep so you could puff your chest out down in Miami and be the damn New York Yankees. But that didn't happen yesterday. He got absolutely blown up, and in the first inning, that can't happen. If that's the wild card game, if that's the one wild card game, and you go out there and you give up four runs at that godforsaken place where anything could happen, just look at that pop-up that LeMayu had to squeeze to win the second game. Visions of Luis Castillo and the Mets and Yankees came into my head that night. So that's definitely not something you want to see. You need your ace, as Jake just said, Jeff, to be your ace. He needs to get himself right, and he needs to get himself right in a hurry. Well, again, that's two in a row. And again, I still think that this sticky stuff has something to do with his inconsistency. 100%. Whether he goes, yeah, whether he goes and dominates or not. And you're right. You know, I, I think you look at the Yankee staff when you when you sign someone to that amount of money, and you you expect it. You know, for a bullpen guy, you expect a day off. You're like, okay, this guy's going to go deep in the game. We're going to wind up. You know, I, finally, I get a day off. You know, he's a Randy Johnson or a Pedro Martinez or someone like that, and and he's not. So I, you know, probably going forward for the next two months, you know, of the season, you really don't know what starters are going to show up because there really hasn't been any consistency in that starting rotation. Now the last, now Tyone's going on Friday against the Miami Marlins and he's probably been your most consistent guy. You said it last Thursday, you know, with the way he, he has come out in July and now he gets to wrap up July and the deadline and, and, you know, have a, have a really, really good month. Maybe the pitcher of the month he's pitched that well. 
But, you know, he's about the only consistent guy that you look, he's throwing some consistent starts together. Nobody else has really thrown some consistent starts together. He's that's the that's including your ace. He's their best starter right now, hands down. Hands, it's him and it's Nestor Cortez, for crying out loud. Right, and with the league that has no idea who this guy is. So it'll be interesting, to, you know, the second or third time when he has to face a team. But, he, you know, he's he has thrown well. You're absolutely right. And, and that's the thing. Maybe they add another pitcher. Maybe there's another blockbuster. You know, nobody thought this was going to happen. And he's done it cost effectively as well. Before we get to your former teammate, Bernie Williams, and those four World Series champions that we're going to reminisce about, which I can't wait for, Nelly. I know you guys with those teams, you made a lot of deals at the deadline. What was that like when you knew you had a good team to begin with? And then you had reinforcements on the way for Mr. Steinbrenner. I mean, because he always wanted to win. He was always putting you all in the position, in the best position possible. So when you heard about those deals, what was the biggest one, first and foremost? And secondly, what was it like in the clubhouse when you saw those reinforcements walk in and put on the pinstripes of the road grace? Well, you're just kind of hoping you weren't getting called in the office and you were being traded <laughs> for one of those big guys. So, you know, that was the only thing that you were, you were, you know, kind of hoping that wasn't going to happen, but you knew around the deadline that it was, he was going to do something. And he just said, okay, here you go. Here you go, Yankees. Here you go, Yankee fans. Here you go, Joe Torre. He said, go get him because I'm, I'm doing everything I can to make this team better. And even in 98, I can't even remember a tra- the trade that we made, but even in 98, as good as we were going, we, I think he did some kind of move there to add someone. And I think our biggest one, it was um, David Justice. David Justice was our probably biggest deadline trade, but he we got him in June. He was our team MVP. I mean, this guy was just amazing to watch at the plate. And what a great teammate that he was, one of my favorite teammates. And he was our biggest, I guess, acquisition as far as catapulting us even further in 99. I think we got him in 99. It just seemed like every, I mean, even the winter time, you know, I would I would go back out to Seattle. I was always really, two of my best friends were Ken Griffey Jr. and Jay Buhner. And I always hung around those guys all the time in the winter. We either golfed together, jet skied, we did all kinds of stuff. And our families all hung together all the time. So I was pretty much over Jay's house almost every day. And I'd be in the kitchen, we'd eat breakfast or whatever. And next thing you know, he goes, holy crap, you guys just got Chuck Knobloch. He says, are you kidding me? You guys getting any better? I mean, it never ends. And that's what it was with Mr. Steinbrenner. It never ended, whether it was in the wintertime or the trade deadline. He was always doing something. Even after 98, when we won 125 games, we go to spring training and all of a sudden David Wells and Graham Lloyd get called in the office the very first day of spring training. Oh, we just traded you to the Blue Jays. We just got Roger Clemens. We're like, holy crap. I mean, are you kidding me? I mean, we just won 125 games thinking we had the same team and he just mixes it up again and adds Roger Clemens. So it's just... uh, and this kind of reminds me of those days of what Brian Cashman has just done. Yeah, uh, Scott Brocious was uh, before the season in 1998. You guys got him in November. And then you got Chuck Knobloch right after that uh, before the season in February. So, yeah, they weren't deadline deals, but both of those guys proved to be very, very good for that 1998 Yankees team. So you're absolutely spot on correct. And now we're going to talk about someone who was on that team. We're going to talk to someone who is on that team with you. Coming up next, we have a fantastic interview with the Yankees legend, four-time World Series champion, Bernie Williams, right here on the Pinstripe Pod. 
Joining us now, as promised, four-time World Series champion, New York Yankees legend and Latin Grammy nominee, Bernie Williams, and uh, his life was forever changed after losing his father to idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. We'll ask Bernie about that. It's a common type of interstitial lung disease, and Bernie, I'm, I, we're going to talk about that in just a bit, but first, we'd like to reminisce with you about those four World Series championships with my co-host here, Jeff Nelson. First and foremost, as I ask all of his former teammates, that have run through this podcast, Bernie. What kind of teammate was Nelly? Oh, man. Nelly was a piece of work. No, no, I'm just <laughs> kidding, man. <laughs> no. no, man. Nelly was actually, you know, I think our relation goes outside of the team. Uh, we actually uh, played against each other, I think maybe at some point in the minor leagues. And then obviously when he was with, with the Mariners, he was probably the toughest at bat that I ever had to face, you know, out of pitcher. He, I could never hit him square. He would either strike me out, walk me, or just hit me. <laughs> I, I had no chance. to <laughs> hit a ball off of him. <laughs> it's funny, Bernie, you, me- you mentioned the very first time I was thinking about this today, the very first time, because we played against each other when you were in Albany in 89 in AA, and then I was, uh, I was in Williamsport. The first time I ever met you, uh, it was at the hotel in Albany that we were staying in when, we, when I was with Williamsport. And Tina was the first baseman. We had a few guys that were in the big league team then. Uh, and you were you were staying for some reason. You were staying at the same hotel or whatever. You came out and, you know, we, I think you met a bunch of the guys. I met the first time I met you. And then, uh, then we played against each other in the big leagues. And it's funny. You know, when I got traded over, and we talked about this the other day at Joe Torrey's golf tournament, when I got traded over to New York, I loved, I, I mean, I loved playing against the Yankees. I mean, I didn't like them very well. I didn't like any of their players, just the way they carried themselves. And I wanted to ask you about that in a minute, about the, you know, how you guys were, you know, the thought process in the minor leagues going through as a Yankee. But, you know, you always wanted to beat them. And I think that's the way it is now. But I must have hit, when I got traded, I'm, and I think I probably hit you with sliders, Bernie. I never probably hit you ever with a fastball. It was always a breaking ball down in the leg or a foot or something. It was a slider right on my big toe. <laughs> <laughs> That's the captain of the foot, Bernie. <laughs> exactly. That is, man. I mean, it's either just hits you or you chase it down and strike, you know, strike you out. Kind of, you know, started making adjustments after the third, second or third at bat. You know, this guy's going to try to get me to chase something in my belt. So I better not swing at it. But it, a tough out, man. Uh, a tough tough pitcher to face, especially in, in certain situations where he was like conveniently wild. I mean, he would be all over the place and then all of a sudden he would pitch three balls right on the right on the black, unhittable stuff, you know, and it was like you you go out to the dugout, you're shaking your head. It's like how I mean, how how is this possible? He just didn't seem to be, he seemed to be out of there, out of whack. Uh, and then all of a sudden, he's like three, you know, like three majestic big league pitches, you know. At that point, to me, that was what made Nelly as effective as he ever was. The fact that he could just dial it in, in the middle of an at-bat, and seems like he was completely uh, uh, lost it, and then just come right back with some, like, really nasty stuff. And, uh, you know, it was great. You know, he was just awesome for our team. Bernie, you came up the first time in 1991 as a 22-year-old. The Yankees weren't doing so well at that point, 92, 93. How did you feel all of this building? Did you see you guys turning a corner? Did you feel that in the organization when you were coming up? I think the whole thing started to turn the corner in 90. Well, actually, at the beginning of those years, 91 and 92, you know, we went through some uh, changes in the organization, you know, with uh, uh, the suspension of uh, Mr. Steinbrenner, uh, some controversial thing that happened with him and uh, Dave Winfield. Right after that, and I think he's 
he spent a, a uh, you know, I don't know if it was a full season or maybe parts of a seasons out of the uh, game where he couldn't be uh, a lot. He wasn't allowed on the, you know, on the day-to-day operations. And I think at that point, uh, the people that were kind of running the uh, show, you know, with him, Mark Newman and, and uh, Jim Michael and uh, even Buck Walter, uh, among other people, you know, in the organization, kind of made uh, this sort of decision of bringing up uh, you know, the young talent that they were kind of like, uh, you know, racing in the in the farm system uh, and giving them an opportunity to actually do approve what they can do in the big leagues before they would make any decisions, you know, regarding their future in the organization. And that opportunity, you know, I was kind of like the second wave of those uh, guys that came in. I think the first wave was more like a uh, you know, guys like Andy Stankiewicz and uh, Hensley Newlands. And, uh, you know, if you remember Kevin Moss, you know, he had like a stellar meteoric rise. You know, in that first couple of months that he played on the team, he was pulling everything on that short porch. I think he was probably one of the fastest people that came that uh, hit 20 home runs in the history of the game at that point. And uh, Oscar Asokar, I think uh, one of the first people in my generation, uh, you know, in my time was, you know, uh, hence, uh, Jim Lyric uh, that came, you know, before me. And then he, those people sort of paved the way for me to actually be on the team. And then, you know, uh, to my uh, luck, it was a fortuitous situation for me because they were in constant negotiations with Roberto Kelly and they have sort of come to an impasse which uh, Roberto wanted I guess a better deal uh, they were not willing to uh, give him that uh, contract so they said well we have this guy in the minor league so let's just give him an opportunity to see what he can do and that was me so I came in the sec- uh, first second half of 91 in the second half of 92 towards the end of the season and by 1993, they already made the decision to trade Roberto for Paul O'Neill coming from Cincinnati. And I think that that told me that they have made the decision to keep me in center field, you know, since they uh, Paul was going to play right field. And I think at that point, I just kind of saw the uh, uh, the tide turning into their, uh, them, you know, forming a team with uh, a lot of core people and then having this ancillary pieces, you know, coming in from different organizations that would definitely be a, a great fit for the club. And, uh, you know, I guess that sort of opened the way uh, for uh, Tino and, uh, and Nelly to come in in that same fashion, you know, people that, you know, we saw the need of a, of a you know, great relief pitcher and then with the, uh, uh, Don Mattingly getting out of the team, uh, retiring, that we needed to fill that void with a great first baseman. And uh, uh, we were so lucky to have the opportunity to get Tino and, and Nelly at, at that time. You know, Bernie, you're probably, you know, one of the best all-around center fielders I've ever played with and against. And, you know, it was amazing to watch you. You were in like a deer. You know, every time the ball was hit in the right field, right center field gap, O'Neill looked to his right and said, okay, Bernie, go get it because I'm not catching this thing. Yeah. And then I have to talk to Doctor because I couldn't throw it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but uh, but you know what what made you know New York was always a tough place to play, especially we had a lot of superstars come come to our team, and you've seen it way before I even got there. What made you have such success there? I mean, you you were you were amazing Yankee, an amazing hitter, both in the right right handed batter's box and left handed batter's box at Yankee Stadium. Nothing ever seemed to get to you. Well, I think it was a combination of factors. I think I. Can't kind of found a, a right mix uh, between keeping my mouth shut <laughs> and uh, in playing, trying to play it as hard as I could. You know, in my tenure, I was, you know, nobody in New York is, is fallible uh, as far as the booing is concerned. They boo their stars and they boo, the, you know, the players that come in. And uh, you have to sort of uh, take that as the way it is in New York. And once you realize that, you know, they just want you to, they just want you to do well. The fans I'm talking about, they want you to do well and they get frustrated as much as you are frustrated when you don't do as well as is expected. 
So once I internalized that mentality of the fans in New York, I was my hardest critic. And I will be the first one to say, hey, I messed up. You know, I that, that was a mistake. I made a mistake. I made an error. And owning up to, you know, the times that where you were not playing up to your uh, capability or your expectations, I think gave me a lot of respect you know, within the fan base because they knew that I wasn't, I wasn't half, you know, playing you know i was pouring my heart and soul into the team into my effort and uh you have to be able to do that day in and day out and uh you know the fans demand that from the players in new york in any field it could be football it could be basketball you know obviously outfield with baseball uh you kind of owe it to them to do the best that you can i think i embraced that uh, mentality early on in my career i wasn't bothered you know for the booze because that was a reminder of me you know not coming up to my own expectations as a player but it, it wasn't the same case for people that would come from uh, other teams that were not used to that kind of mentality from the fans uh and they i mean it could be a little intimidating kind of come into a situation especially if you get signed you know, with a big deal, you know, big contract, you know, big money coming in, they demand, you know, that, you know, almost for you to be perfect in every situation, especially the situations that require you to be clutch. You know, those are the things that kind of count in, in New York, uh, you know, where you, you know, could hit, you know, 20 home runs with, with nobody on base and the game is not on the line. But the ones you hit when the game is on the line and you have to be clutch, those are the things that, you know, that, you know, the fan base remembers. And uh, I was just lucky enough to be in enough opportunities that I was able to come out on top in most of them. Well, you were. And you were such a pleasure to watch, Bernie, day in and day out. Uh, you put your nose down. You put your head down. You did your job. And that's why New York respected you and fans respect you to this day. And they will for the rest of time. And in the postseason, when it expanded to three rounds in 1995, you hit eight go-ahead postseason home runs. I know Jer- Derek Jeter gets that moniker of Captain Clutch. You're not too far behind there, buddy. You tied Babe Ruth for the most go-ahead home runs in Yankees history. Your 31 RBI in the seventh inning or later are more than uh, Jorge Posada or Jeter's. And the latter two at the time of this, they, they were still both active now, of course, retired. Going back and looking at this, we heard Derek talk about how great Don Mattingly was for him in his career and kind of massaging him into the league. What did Donnie mean to you? I'm just curious. What did Mattingly mean to you? Because you knew what he was to the Yankees. So how did he help you, if at all, when you came up with the club? To me, they're even more profoundly impacting my career because when Derek came in, I mean, he came into an easy situation, you know. He was just a new kid on the block and the whole mentality or, or the whole climate in the clubhouse had gone from the Bronx Zoo, you know, in the 70s to, you know, the 80s and most of the, you know, like late 80s having, you know, this sort of climate of, you know, old veterans, you know, an old school guy giving rookies a really hard time. And I was not, uh, I mean, I was, I was a part of that, you know, earlier in my career. Uh, you had guys like, you know, Mel Hall and, uh, Barfield and all those guys, you know, kind of giving you the tough rookie love, you know, from the veterans. And I think it took a lot of people, especially Don Mattingly, who was the captain at the time. He was the one actually that took me in the back of the bus at one time and say, hey, you're a great player, but you need to do this and this and this to be cut, to make it to the next level. Uh, and the fact that he took the time to do that and kind of shield me uh, from, you know, all these other guys that were, you know, kind of like trying to give me the tough love, you know, for whatever reason, I think it was a really, really important part of my development as a player 
because I saw like I had a guy high ranking on the team having my back and uh, really pulling for me to do well. So, I mean, I have no words to express, you know, how the gratitude that I feel to Don Manley up to this day because he did that for me early on when I was a young player that didn't know any better. Uh, he really taught me how to be a, a major league player and obviously how to be a, a, a Yankee. You took over his locker, Bernie. You took over his locker. You were in the corner playing your mu- music every day until about five minutes before the game started. <laughs> Yeah, that, that was before my nap. <laughs> well, I consider you, you know, I know, I know Yankee history, and we're reminded that every, every old-timer's day, but I consider you probably one of the greatest Yankees that ever put on the uniform. You're, you're amazing to watch, and, and I really am honored to be your teammate. You know, I was just wondering, you look back on the years that we had in the four World Series and the teams, and, you know, and Joe Torre there, I know he means a lot to you. You ever think back and just look, about, look at the, these teams and say, you know, probably will never be done again winning three in a row? The camaraderie, the chemistry, the players that we had back then and how amazed you know i'm amazed about what we had and what we accomplished i am amazed too i mean i i cannot agree uh, more with you uh because those were years where if you had put myself back in those days especially you know 96 97 98 i mean you were in the middle of things and uh we didn't know what was gonna you know what the future had uh, you know had for us we were like just doing things you know reacting playing baseball and that the numbers kept accumulating and sort of piling up but i think it just it's just a function of us not really worrying about the numbers from an individual standpoint as much as we were worried about just getting w's i mean derek has said that in, in many interviews and yes it was all the, it, the only number that mattered was the W, uh, as opposed to, you know, having the individual accolade. I think everybody sort of bought into that mentality early on, and it was just reflective of all the people that wanted to actually come to play for the Yankees after those years, 98, 99, 2000. You seemed like a plethora of, of people, you know, in other teams saying, hey, how do you get into that? How do you get into that? I want to be part of that because I think they kind of knew that it wasn't only, you know, the fact that we won, and as much as we won, it was just the camaraderie and the relationships that we had as teammates uh, and it reflected you know it sort of reflected in all the the rest of the league you know it's like these guys are winning but these guys can get along with each other and they're playing as a team and i think to me that was the most important thing that i can take from that you know we have every team has a group of people that kind of like hanging out with each other you know i used to go out you know to lunch with uh derek and jorge before the game but i think you know at uh, some point with everything was said and done, when we got together in that clubhouse before the games, you know, for batting practice, after the games, there was this just this great camaraderie of people that really care for one another. And I think the you know, the organization saw that as a good thing, and they spent the money trying to keep us together for as long as they could because they knew that they had a good thing going. And I think I do have to give the Yankees a lot of credit to keep us together. You know, every time, you know, whoever was, you know, their turn to become a free agent or, you know, be traded or whatever, you know, they spent the money to keep us uh, close. I think that was a great uh, source of our uh, success in those years as well. Bernie, four-time World Series champion, five-time All-Star. You're playing the Blue Note Jazz Club in New York, 17th and 18th The Bernie Williams Collective. Again, thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate it. Just something as a fan for myself, it it always seemed to bother me. And I know it probably didn't bother you, but it always bothered me because as a fan, I, I went through the Bronx Zoo years. I was a young kid. I was five, six years old. So I don't really have a lot of vivid memories of those teams. I do of the 1981 team that lost to the Dodgers in the World Series. So it was a lot of losing for me 
throughout the 80s, even though the Yankees had one of the best collective records in that decade, there were no World Series championships. And you were pretty much the guy who came up as a homegrown Yankee and started the transformation. You were one of the guys, you were one of the foundation. And every time I hear core four, it kind of ticks me off because it should have been the fab five. Now, I don't know if it ticks you off, but it ticks me off because you were part of it. And I just have to hear it from you. Are you okay with this or no? Well, I think it depends on the data you ask me. Today, particularly, I feel pretty good about it. I think there's actually a good thing about this because when they say the core core, it's inevitably that there is a conversation and they, my name kind of comes up. So the fact that my name comes up, it's either, it, it's a part of the conversation, it's a part of the argument, and that cannot be a bad thing. That's always a good thing to be mentioned in, in the, you know, with those names as well. I think that's, you know, it's part of uh, what makes baseball great. You have different people that have different opinions. I try not to really, you know, involve myself with a lot of that, you know, opinion. I do know that my career was, you know, it was a, it was an awesome career from a, from an individual standpoint, and not necessarily because of the numbers, but the time that I had. I mean, I created so many memories, you know, with people, Jeff Nelson, uh, you talk about Derek and Jorge, Mariano, Paul O'Neill, David Cohn, the people that I can, you know, call on the phone and they answer my calls. You know, we have a relationship beyond the game of baseball that has, you know, has, has been going on for years and years. And it's this kind of friendship that you have, you know, where you don't see people for like years and then you start talking and everything kind of comes together. You pick up where you left off. It's kind of like that relationship where I have, you know, with with these guys. You know, I haven't probably don't see them for like two or three years. And then I see them as like, hey, what's up? And it's, al- it's almost like all time. That kind of thing that you you long for that, you know, people, you know, kind of kill for that kind of relationship. I am very fortunate to have that kind of thing going. You know, the fact that we won and I'm part of the, that conversation to be more of a, you know, fast five, a core four, I think is just, you know, kind of side thing of winning four World Series, uh, you know, winning the batting title and being part of these great teams that were, we have so much fun, man. Uh, and that, those are the things that nobody can take away from, me. you know, all those memories, all those relationships that I've sort of accumulated over years. That's what I kind of remember. And I don't tend to, I don't tend to, uh, focus on things that may not be, you know, as important to me as uh, being part of those great teams. And, uh, that's, you know, that's where I leave it at. You know, I, I, you know, you can't really do much about it. Can't really you know, drive the conversation one way or the other. It's more, it's more about, you know, being part of that team and, uh, I wouldn't be able to have the success that I had as a, as a player. Those guys that were, you know, right there having my back and I'm having theirs. And to me, that's the one thing that I take out of all these teams uh, that I was a part of. And, uh, you know, that's the one, the one thing that I will take to my grave. You know, Bernie, you're a superstar baseball player, former baseball player. Now you're a superstar musician. You know, you've been playing in a lot of baseball venues. You've been playing with a lot of uh, well-known artists. And now you get to, you know, you have your time and you're in little venues, the one at the Blue Note Jazz Club. What's tougher, playing in front of 50,000 Yankee fans in, in the game on the line or, or playing in a big stadium or in, in a small event in front of people when you have your guitar? At the beginning, you know, when I was uh, a baseball player, I, you know, was able to sort of master my 
skill set you know, to the best of my ability. But there was always this, this sort of uncertainty thing that I had to deal with because I, there's a lot of things that I could control by playing in the game. But there were a lot of things that I could not control. And that would always drive me crazy. I would ne- never be able to control, you know, the umpire making a bad call on me or, you know, somebody just throwing a, a ball right in the black where I couldn't hit it. A lot of these variables that I had no control over, but you do the best, you, you know, that you can uh, and you kind of get through them. In music, however, at the beginning, it was a lot harder. And not necessarily because playing the music was harder. The harder part for me was to interact with the audience. You know, uh, being, you know, kind of like soft-spoken, you know, whatever you want to call it, you know, shy, introverted. I revel on the fact that I didn't have to deal with the crowd when I was playing baseball. It was all about me blocking everything out and just going about my business of hitting, catching, throwing, whatever it is. I didn't have to even look at the fans. And it was acceptable and actually encouraged in many ways by people. You have to deal with these people. And music, however, the hardest part for me was, you know, in the middle of the song, I would like be terrified to, to think, oh my God, what am I going to talk to them about? You know, in the <laughs> next song, you know, what what is I, I, I didn't have it, but I, I think, you know, what made it easier for me to that respect was the preparation and not and working hard enough in my skill set in music, being the best guitar player that I could be so I could just relax with the music part and then be confident enough to own up to my skill set and say, hey, you know, this is what it is. I'm just going to throw it at you, take it or leave it. But this, I mean, hope, uh, hopefully you're entertained by this. And owning up to your ability uh, because of the amount of work that you have put in it gave me a great incentive to be more vocal on stage. But that was the, the part that was so terrifying to me was just talking after songs and hopefully that thing has sort of become a, a better thing and I've been able to learn how to have fun with it and usually I mean obviously the Yankee sticks and lines and asking what the score is in the middle of the concert always works <laughs> uh, but uh, it, it's a good thing to, to be able to uh, take all the things that I learned playing the game and then you know sort of making that transition into utilizing all that skill uh mental skill set utilizing into being the best musician that i could be especially playing on stage has been a challenge but uh, it has been i'll tell you has been a lot more fun because of a lot of the variables are you know i can control you know i can control the amount of you know dynamics the amount of tension the amount of uh passion that i put in the music that's one thing that i was not able to control uh, as well in baseball 275 career hitter in the postseason 22 homers and uh, 80 RBI Bernie Williams not only a tremendous baseball player not only one of the key cogs in turning this franchise around in the early and mid and late 90s Bernie you're a great musician as Nelly just brought up as well and now you're determined to turn your family's experience into a chance to help others impacted by the rare lung disease IPF can you just tell us what you're doing with this and for the outreach and everything else and your breathless ballad challenge as well yeah, I mean, I, I'm glad you asked that. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about this. Uh, uh, my dad uh, was, you know, one of the most influential people in my life. You know, he taught me how to play guitar. He taught me how to play baseball. And he is still a lot of great, valuable uh, life lessons. He passed away in 2001 from this rare lung disease called idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. It's basically a scarring of the lung tissue that uh, limits your ability to breathe uh, to a point that you cannot breathe any longer and that uh, you die from it. It's a terminal disease, about three to five years uh, average once you get diagnosed. Uh, my dad was misdiagnosed for five years uh, before they actually found the right diagnosis. And uh, after that time, uh, he lasted uh, for about two, you know, two and a half years before he passed away in 2001. I uh, never had an opportunity to put closure to that uh, because I was, you know, basically about four or five years before I retired. So it, it was all about baseball. And I put my dad's 
death sort of in the back burner of my mind. I mean, I was dealing with it, but just in a partial way. Fast forward, you know, 2015, uh, Bear Ringer Engelheim approached me with, uh, you know, the opportunity to be uh, part of this campaign called Breathless that uh, basically raised awareness about IPF, uh, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. To me, it was a great opportunity to help people, but more importantly, to uh, still have this process of... Uh, dealing with my dad's death, uh, which was a, a blessing in disguise. I was able to put trips together where I was able to uh, talk using the baseball platform, reaching out to people, kind of raising awareness about this uh, disease, uh, which sort of led us to uh, the COVID year, which uh, uh, we were not able to do that on a personal basis. So we came up with this idea to put lyrics to a song that I have written for my dad uh, when he passed away called Paralumberna, which is you know the, the way that we called him. Uh, we had about 70 entries of this, uh, you know, lyric contest. We were putting lyrics to this song, which was an instrumental tune. And it was probably one of the hardest things for me to uh, do, uh, listening and hearing and li reading to these uh, lyrics, which uh, actually uh, were other people's experiences of loss, whether it was from IPF or from other illnesses and, uh, uh, you know, tragedy in their lives. Uh, it was heartbreaking. And, uh, a very difficult process to to go through, but we were able to uh, go through all of that. I had the uh, the pleasure to work with uh, an elite panel of uh, judges, you know, from all walks of life. You know, Queen uh, Latifah was involved, Willie Randolph was involved, Sweeney Murdy was involved. You know, all people that you know were not only involved in music, but you know, music, you know, enthusiasts and people that had uh, experiences in all walks of life helping me uh, come up with the winner of these, uh, uh, you know, of these lyrics for this tune. And it was just a great process. And uh, now, uh, you know, as things are opening up, uh, we are just very close to announce the winner of the lyrics. We're going to have the opportunity to record, re-record the tune with the winning lyrics with uh, a great uh, performance by a professional celebrity musician. Uh, which at this point I'm not in liberty to discuss who it is, but uh, it, it is it is in the works, and uh, 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 looking forward to the opportunity to re-release the song with the with the tune uh, with the lyric with the new lyric, and uh, you know it's, it's uh, we're gonna have this uh, concert actually August 29th at the Richfield Playhouse, which I'm gonna have the opportunity to play the tune in its original form. I did an arrangement with uh, it almost almost sounds like classical with a cello. And a flute because my brother is a cellist in Puerto Rico and his son is a great jazz flute player. Uh, hopefully, we'll have an opportunity to perform it that way, which is going to be very special. Every time we've got an opportunity to to perform this tune uh, with my family, it's, it's always a special moment in my life. So we're still working, uh, just trying to raise awareness about uh, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. As much as I have the opportunity to do it in every interview, uh, it's a great thing because it kind of brings me back to you know, my purpose. And I know my dad is, you know, looking down, uh, hopefully being proud of what I'm doing uh, on his behalf. A hundred percent. Bernie, uh, I can't, I know Jeff thanked you for being a teammate and a great teammate. I, I thank you from the bottom of my heart uh, for doing what you did for this team and for just being a tremendous human being. And thank you so much for the time. Bernie51.com at BW51official on Twitter. We really appreciate it, Bernie. Thank you so much for coming on.
Oh my God! Thank you so much. You guys brought me back. You know, at my age right now, it's just great to, to <laughs> go back and uh, with person that are interested in them, listening Your to my age. story and reminisce about. Uh, I do have a story about Nelly, man. I do have, uh, you know, this. Uh, remember the fight in '98 against the Baltimore Orioles? I got this image that I could never unsee with you. Got you, the Twin Towers, Graham Lloyd, the Australian, <laughs> a giant, and now Nelly, six 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 seven, just storming out, you know, from the bullpen, you know, <laughs> when Jeff Nelson pushes ground into the pile and then you go into this melee, <laughs> man, that was just one of the most awesome times that I've ever had in playing baseball. So, I mean, uh, thank you. Thank- Nelly was just a great teammate, Barno, no, one of the best teammates I've ever had. Thanks, Bernie. You're awesome, man. You're the man. That says goodnight to episode 73, the birth year of the DH and dedicated to the first ever DH, Ron Bloomberg edition of the Pinstripe Pod, our Yankees podcast from the New York Post. Thanks to Jake Brown, Brian Mungia for producing the show. Please dive into Apple Podcasts right now. Give us a five-star rating, write in a positive review. We do appreciate it. For four-time World Series champion Jeff Nelson, I'm Chris Sheeran. We're back on Monday following the Yankees three-game series with the Marlins. Enjoy the games and your weekend, and thanks for listening to the Pinstripe Pod.